Amen. Well, take, uh, take your, uh, your handout, if you would, entitled today's message, Gap, Ages or Days. Let's say a couple things before I say what I wanted to say, right? You ever, ever had that problem? I end up writing so many things on my, my, my nice colored sheet here. Mine's all colored, yours isn't. Just an outline. And uh, a couple of things. Let me say this at the forefront. You might want to write this down if you think it's noteworthy. God's Word establishes the framework. Framework, keyword. God's Word establishes the framework for all thought in all disciplines. It's the framework. You know, if you ever build a house, Roger just finishing a house, and JT, you're doing the same thing, and, and all the shaking your head. Now, you guys are close. I think you're going to get in today, though, but you in a week or two, right? There you go. Okay. Waiting on the government. Anyway, um, the framing. If you ever, ever put up anything, a house, an addition, the framework is all important, right? It's, uh, it's what holds everything else up. It doesn't define what you put inside it necessarily, but it sets the parameters of what's going to be there. God's work, uh, God's wonderful word establishes the framework of all discipline and all thought. What do I mean by that? Uh, it's not a book solely of theology. It's not. Although it teaches from cover to cover about God, right? Uh-huh. A lot of it's filled with narrative, which is a normal way of expressing a story. We all love stories, don't we? Narrative is historical narrative. The part we're going to look at today in Genesis 1, is a, it's, it's written like history. It's a narrative. It's not po- poetry. All right? But it's, it's not a book of philosophy either. You know, some of you have studied the Fusus and Greek theology, uh, uh, philosophy and development of that. I spent six uh, hours of college work working on that and beyond. It's not a book of philosophy. You say, well, I like Immanuel Kant and I like uh, uh, Plato's theory of ideas and all that. It's not. But wherever it touches one's world and life view, that's what philosophy means, it establishes the framework. For us as Christians, and should be for all people everywhere. It's uh, not a book of history. It's not a history book like you'd read uh, the history of Western civilization. So you took Western Civ, but wherever it touches history, it sets the boundaries and parameters uh, of framework. You, and it's accurate, right to the jot and tittle, to the least stroke of the pen. They've never disproven it. Archaeology has been like the icing on the cake if you've ever studied any of that. We don't believe in a Daniel. We don't believe in this and that. And bit by bit, oh, we found something with you know, his name on it. We don't believe in Pilate. Oh, we found a stone at Caesarea with his Pilate's name on it. Time and time and time again. Uh, what God has said endures forever. You know, God said, he never said, oops, oops. You ever say, oops? I have. Oops. I made a mistake. God never said that. And God has said what he meant, meant what he said, and, it's, and it endures forever. It's not a book on historical geology. Did you, you realize that? Some of you have studied historical geology and geology and the geological column and all that. But where God's words speak, it establishes the, the framework and the parameter of how we ought to think about earth science and geology and, and paleontology and all the other isms and thoughts and sciences uh, and so on. All truth, what I'm saying is this, all truth, all that is really truth is God's truth. It is. 
And if you trace it back far enough, it comes to a person, namely the one who said, I am the way, the truth, the aletheia, and the life. That's Jesus. Okay, so you don't live in a sort of dichotomy, two worlds. You don't try and straddle the fence. Okay, now I'm not in the church, not in the Word. I'm on this side, and I'm in the realm of culture and university and popular culture and uh, believes in sort of a naturalism and doesn't everyone, and I don't really know about that, and maybe there's something, and now I'm in the church and in the Bible, and okay, God's great, he's created. No, no, don't live like that. You have a splitting headache when it rips up the middle. Don't do that. I, I never do that. Never. And it's a, really a, an attack against the Word of God. Beyond that, let me say a couple more things. You know, there are, there are the great questions of life that natural man in his rebellion against God and against his Christ, think of Psalm 2, will we'll never know the answers. And the great questions are, are, of life are, are, where did I come from? You know, we're going to look at that briefly today. Where did I come from? That's a great question. You can look at, you can look at the moon until you wrinkle up and die. You'll never figure that one out. Uh, uh, the second question is, who am I? You, you know the reality of that? Here's the reality. You'll never know who you are until you know God. Don't go inside. I'm just going inside to find myself. Don't go in there. It's cavernous. It's dark, and you'll never come out with any answers. Never. You won't know who you are and your friends and family and neighbors until they know him first. Okay? He is the measure of all things. Okay, so where? Where did I come from? Who am I? What am I to be doing now? You know, there's a lot. That's up for grabs, right? Are we bohemians? Are we Epicureans? Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die? Are we, you know, give my life to sports? Do I work? You know, work, work, work. Do I build my treasure up bigger and bigger? What do I do? What, what am I supposed to be doing here? It's the scriptures that teach that alone. Man's lost. What, what am I supposed to be doing? Oh, life's a bummer. Oh, man, stuff happens. Man, bad reports, this and that. But you don't even know that. And finally, where am I going? That's a great question that... Don't go down to AAA to get the trip tick on that one. No way. Where am I going? Oh, man, this is a bad show. You don't know any of those apart from the Lord. Wow. Well, gaps, ages, or days. Genesis 1. Look at Genesis chapter 1. And uh, let's, uh, let's begin to look at this. One of the big questions, as I mentioned, of life in your introduction on your sheet is where did we come from? It's the study of origins, ultimate origins. And today, if you study or if you survey the answers given to this question, uh, it is discovered that really there are two, you can boil it all down, there are nuances of each, but you can boil it all down, there are two opposing views, and they are in diametric opposite directions, like light and dark. They couldn't be any more different. Either the answer is a form of evolution and development, it's a, a form of that, or the other is a special act or action of creation by God. That's it. When you look at ultimate origins, there are only really two, two answers to that question. Well, today, yeah, you should know and probably would guess, maybe close to that, it's estimated that 95% of all natural scientists, that means scientists who have uh, a, a master's and advanced degrees in the natural sciences, 
I'm not talking psychiatry or psychology or sociology, not any of those social sciences. We're talking the hard sciences, astrophysics, uh, physics, chemistry, uh, organic biology, all these kind of things, inorganics and all, all that kind of thing. The stuff that some of you uh, avoided in school, remember that? I know I'm talking to the choir and none of you did. But I'm taking antibiotics, so I'm dry, I'm very dry. <clears throat> but uh, that, did you know that 95% it's estimated, they believe, and believe is the key word here. Circle that a couple of times. Because we are talking belief systems here. It's not like, oh, they're science, that's hard fact and real. This, you're, now we're talking faith, faith and, belief, uh, faith and facts, you know, somehow they're, no, no. We're talking origins, we're talking beginning, we're talking no one, no one was there to give a report on it. God alone was there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he tells us in the only book he ever gave, the only book he ever gave. It's not the Koran, it's not Confucius writing, it's not Buddha. Guess who made them? Jesus Christ made them. Tell that to your friends sometimes. Hey, say, hey, hey guess who made Buddha? Uh, uh, Mohammed? Who? Jesus. That's right. It's a belief system. And they believe that all the physical and biological complexities in the universe came into existence, it's 95%, by pure chance. Pure chance. Now, they've developed a whole science of probability. Have you ever take a math class on that? That was about one of the last math classes I took, developing probabilities. It was kind of fun to work with numbers and work with probabilities you know they've worked on the science of probabilities of everything coming from nothing by pure chance. You know the number is absolutely impossible. The number is 10 to the power so enormous. It's multiplied, multiplied, multiplied times more than the electrons in the entire universe and the possibility and, and, and the science of, of probability that, that it came. Impossible. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. It never happened. Non-life never produced life, ever. Ever. Never. And don't be hoodwinked. Don't be deceived, and don't let your kids and grandkids be deceived. It never happened, ever. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, and he lay there as a perfect man, lifeless, until God breathed into him the breath of life. And when you die, and you will, if Jesus doesn't come first, your breath of life, your living nephesh, your soul will exit your body. A man can get together all the elements, all the compounds that make up our body, and they cannot make life. Sorry to Frankenstein. Never happened. Ever. Inorganic life never produced life. Ever. God holds that mystery to himself. Oh, it's amazing. Well, God's Word tells us that He spoke. We learned that verse, right? Psalm 33, 6, by the Word of the Lord. He spoke and everything came into being. Now just, I had to turn to Genesis 1, but let's, let's begin. Uh, Hebrews, did we get Hebrews down? Hebrews eleven three. Oh, good. Look at the screen. Hebrews eleven three. This is a good place to start. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. There it is, the breath of his mouth. 
so that the result, what is seen, look around, was not made out of what was visible. Why is that? It was formed by God's word, and it came into being. That's what the Bible tells us clearly. This is God's world. It's not man's world. It is a unique and a special place. Uh, modern science uh, and Scientology and the way they think uh, do not believe that. Uh, think that certainly we're not unique. You're not unique. Uh, you shouldn't even be here by chance. And certainly if it happened here by chance, uh, then it certainly happened other places. Did you know that your tax dollars have funded federally the SETI project out in the Southwest. Sorry to tell you this, millions and millions of dollars out there with big listening devices, much bigger than satellite TV, if you have little satellites on your house, listening, pointing, many of these out there in the desert, pointing up, listening, and beaming out signals. And they're saying this, if you're really there, please contact us. And they listen and they beam all day long and they've heard absolutely nothing. Some are wondering if they're really out there. We don't want them to know we're here. But they're really not there. And it's a waste of your tax dollars and mine to fund such a thing. This is God's world. Well, how then should we think about Genesis 1? Is there room, a good question, for evolution in this account? I want to present this morning three common understandings of the creation week among believers. Let me emphasize that. These are those who would hold to the evangelical faith, that would believe in and claim to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible that sit in churches today around the land and around the world who claim to, to, and I have no reason to doubt, that believe in in the wonder of Christ the Lord as their personal Savior. All right, so that, let's, let's make sure we define these are not the bad guys, okay? And we, we want to be humble as we search God's Word uh, for the Word that, and the truth that God has given and, and apply it to the realm of thought and the culture and all that we swim and live in here in our day. Well, three common understandings of the creation week among believers moving us to proper worship. Now, why do I say that? The end of theology is not so you can beat up people with, all right? You don't walk around and hit them with a two-by-four, I know something uh, 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 that you don't know, and you don't, you don't hoodwink them, and you don't drive them into it. The end of, of pure theology is to get on your face and to worship him. Did you know that? Otherwise, it feeds to pride and arrogancy, and it causes us to look down on others. Never. Nope. Humility. We worship him. Remember when Paul came to that great treatise, uh, uh, the end of, uh, the, the, he, he presents the gospel there in Romans. He unfolds it in eight chapters. I mean, there's nothing like it in all the scriptures. And then 9, 10, 11, he deals with what about God's program with Israel? Is he done with that? Has he set the Jew aside? Will he never deal with them? And then he ends that whole segment there in chapter 11, what? On his face, worshiping. Worshiping God. It's the picture of where our Bible study, our Bible reading, when you're reading the Bible, ought to always lead you. Boy, I got to get on my knees and, and praise God and worship Him and sing to Him. That's the end of Bible knowledge. It's the end of theology, which is the study of God and His Word, salvation in Christ. 
is to praise him. Okay, that's why I say that. It ought to move us to proper worship. Why? Well, because we totally reject any thought of a godless beginning. Totally. Totally. There are those that hold to an atheistic, atheistic, no God evolution that that it came about by pure happenstance. Now, that's, that's what I learned when I went to public institutions for science training. And what you learned, that it's just amazing it came about. And it's what uh, is taught to even third and fourth graders as they open their little science books, as I did. And you open page one, right? And it begins with the worship of the sun. And there's the sun, 93 million miles away. And did you know... If the sun wasn't there, there'd be no life on earth at all. And on and on. It's almost like the Egyptian worship of Ray, the sun god. Everybody bow because it's the sun, S-U-N. Well, it's close. It's not S-U-N. It's S-O-N. And Colossians 1 tells us, and Hebrews 1, and John 1, and other places, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the creator. And the S-U-N didn't come about until later. Namely, the fourth day of Genesis. And it's not the sun, S-U-N, that holds it together. It's the other sun, the Lord Jesus, S-O-N. And that's the way we need to think about life in origins and creation. And so look at your Bible. Let's, just, let's look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God doesn't explain where God was or when he began. And this is the beginning of creation as we know it, not the beginning of God. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit, here's the Holy Spirit of God, was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it, the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called darkness, he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse between the, the waters to separate water from water. And it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let dry ground appear, and it was so. And it was good. In verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. Now the next phrase, very important. You should underline this in your Bible. You see what it says? According to their various kinds that word, that expression, occurs at least 10 times in Genesis 1. It's like, it's as if God is anticipating our day. And he's saying with such redundancy, according to their kinds, according to their kinds, according to their kinds, 10 times in these few verses, within the genetic family of a species or variety, according to their kinds. And do you know that we have never found any transitional life form anywhere? We didn't need to know that, but God's word is true. According to their kinds. I got news for you. If you have children, they're going to look somewhat like you. 
hopefully more like her, according to their kinds. You see? It's always that way. The fruit trees and lions and tigers and fish and birds, according to their kinds, and people, according to their kinds. And it was good. And there, verse 13, day three. And then there's day four, beginning verse four. And God said, let there be lights. And they serve as markers and signs and seasons and days and years. And it was so. God made the stars. Notice that. Verse 16. The stars, billions and billions of them. Do you know it's estimated that in our galaxy, each star is 30 trillion, trillion miles apart at a minimum. There's gravitational pull and all that. I don't even know what that is. Talk about deficit spending in Washington with zeros. That's nothing compared to the distances of the created universe. And it makes a statement, and I've said it as a thousand times, and here it is. God is saying to us when we look up at the star, I'm great, and you're not. Worship me. Not the sun, not the stars, not that pagan astrology that comes out of Babylon, but me in my son. Wow. God said, God said. You go all the way through Genesis 1, God said. And then come to verse 26, and then God said, here's day 6, let us make man, ish, man, ish is the Hebrew word, in our image, in, in our, there's a hint of the Trinity there, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and the livestock, and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created Ish. I'm sorry, this is uh, Adam, 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 in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female. There's Adam and Eve. Adam and Adama. And he created them, and God blessed them. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, rule over it. God said, I give to you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree, every fruit with the seed in it, and they'll be your food. Man originally and all animals were vegetarians. You knew that? Until after the flood. All of them. We're talking tigers, lions, giraffes, dinosaurs, sharks. There was a there was a change that took place. God miraculously changed the animals. There's going to be a reversal of that. Do you read that in Isaiah? When in the millennial kingdom, when the lion walks with the lamb, there's going to be a change there. And now, if it's lion walking with lamb, it's lion one, lamb nothing, you know. That's how that works. And a child shall lead them, and it's child zero, lion one. It doesn't work that. It's going to be a reverse of the curse. But initially, it wasn't so. God saw everything he made. It was very good, verse 31. And there was evening, there was morning. That wonderful formula again, evening and morning. You know the Jew begins the day in the evening? We go like, that's crazy. We begin at midnight. They start around 6 p.m., begins the day. Think of their, their Sabbath observances and Sabbath meal. I've been in Israel a number of times, and you don't eat anything on Friday night after 6 you don't need any. They start the Sabbath, 6 p.m. Evening, morning. That's the cycle of the Jewish. Day 6 and, and so on. Well, three common understandings. Number one, let's give the first one, is, uh, is called the gap theory. 
How do we understand Genesis 1 rejecting totally atheistic evolution as being totally rebellious and deluded by Satan and never happened, never even a possibility of it, something never came about from nothing, you can write that down, or put it another way, nothing ever produced something. I don't care how much time and how much hope and how much chance you want, nothing ever came, something never came from nothing. Never happened, never will. That wristwatch on your hand, if you have a watch on your hand, right? We Americans, we love time, we almost worship time, right? <laughs> Greater probability that all came together on your hand by far than that everything came from that. Impossible. And so what are, so how are Christians? And, and so we're talking about views that, that Bible-believing Christians hold. The first one is the gap theory. And what is this? Well, it finds room for evolution between Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. We just read that again. Well, the theory states, A, that God created a perfect world and perhaps billions of years ago then destroyed the world. And that, that world, incidentally, that's uh, is taught in the gap theory, had human beings, had animals, went on for a long, long, long time, and, uh, and then was uh, destroyed uh, because of the fall of Satan, Lucifer, uh, fell as, uh, as one of the, gl the glorious, most glorious angel, and then God later recreated uh, the earth in six literal days. I think that's a fair summary of uh, the gap theory. How many of you have heard of the gap theory? Raise your hand. Let me. And it's uh, not even a whole verse. And I said, well, it's a gift, you know. <laughs> Some don't think it's a gift. <laughs> uh, but this, is even, this view is even more amazing because it's not even a verse. It's the gap in between. There's an infinite, almost an infinite chasm of space between verse 1 and verse 2. It's like taking a crowbar, and uh, you ever drive in nails, and then you made a mistake, and you had to get a crowbar and yank the two-by-fours apart, and I've done that, and that's what you have to do here. You have to, we're not talking any verse, we're talking space. You see that? I have a little space in my Bible between verse 1 and verse 2. That's where the gap fits. So well, where's the gap? I don't see it. There it is. It's about a quarter inch in my Bible. And they put all of this in there. Because verse 2 begins, Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness over the face of the, dirt, of the, of the earth. So, so we see here in the view uh, that uh, it's the gap. That's why it's called the gap. This theory, uh, you should know, has arrived late. Uh, in the early 1800s, after 1830, uh, the best I can tell. And it did so only as a way, I don't want to impugn motive, but it, uh, it popped up right after it, is only as a way to harmonize uh, the, the, the then current geological thoughts, that's earth, earth history study, the, uh, the geological column that the early geologists came up at, uh, in the 1800s, late 1800s, and trying to harmonize that with the thoughts of the Bible. And so it really was an attempt to accommodate God's Word to current science thought or part of science thought at that day in the 1800s. All right? So that's, uh, that really is, is what, uh, what was the drive, from what I can tell, in that whole thing. Now, you should know it was the first edition of the C.I. Schofield Reference Bible 
that, uh, and that was the Bible uh, in 1909. How many of you are familiar with uh, Schofield and the Reference Bible? Yeah, many, most of you have. I have a copy here of, uh, not, that, not that edition, but my mother gave me this when I was 17, and I was studying, I was leaving to go study down in Brazil, uh, in the jungles down there. And uh, she gave that to me and wrote a very wonderful note on the inside. It reminds me, always write notes when you give books. I've read this 150 times since that. It means more to me as years pass. To my beloved son, Terry, on your 17th birthday, celebrating Brazil, blah, blah, blah. Wonderful, wonderful thing. And I, I love it dearly. Uh, I, this, however, is not the, uh, the initial edition uh, uh, of uh, Schofield's 1909. This is uh, 1967. This is the new Schofield reference. And uh, the original on Genesis 1, the page we read, Schofield put down in his notes the whole presentation of the gap theory. Okay, and, uh, and it made its way into a lot of Bible colleges and seminaries and, and folks and, and, and wonderful churches uh, had that in their Bible. And, the, and uh, that note caused uh, a lot of folks to wonder about God's Word and maybe, maybe there is credence to it. And many folks embraced the gap theory because, I mean, after all, uh, as I was raised, there's nothing better than the Schofield Reference Bible. That's what, I mean, I heard that growing up. How many of you ever heard that? Yeah? And this is uh, King Jim. You like that, Raj? King Jim, although well, you have some updates on the English. <laughs> yeah, language has a way of changing a little bit. Yeah, that's right. So, but now in the new, they didn't keep it in Genesis 1, that big footnote on the gap theory and all that. And note and this note. They moved it back a little bit to Isaiah chapter 45. But it's still the same note. And years and years ago, I wrote in here, Schofield supports the gap theory in all his note and, and, and understanding of that. I say all that to say simply this, that that's what made it popular. And many, many older folks, even Faith's mom and dad, would have heard it and thought, ah, that's probably maybe right. You know, I guess I don't know. I'm not a scientist and all that. But that's how it worked its way into a lot of churches and a lot of thought, trying to accommodate these ancient, uh, or these, these uh, geological col column with uh, the Mesozoic, Mes uh, you know, the pre-Cambrium, Cambrium, all these ages that in the 1800 geologists came up with. Well, uh, Arthur B., Arthur Custance continues to teach us today, if he's still alive, he's a Canadian, uh, he may be dead, but he's the most current, contemporary, most popular figure teaching that. That's his book, Without Form and Void. It's a playoff of uh, Genesis chapter 2, Tohu and Bohu in the Hebrew. Uh, and so you may see some of his material on that. Well, what can we say about, uh, what, what do we say about the gap theory and trying to understand this <clears throat> and the gap between 1 and 2? Well, you should know that the grammar of Genesis 1 and 2 in the Hebrew... I, I really don't believe supports this or even suggests any sort of time lapse uh, be, between verses 1 and 2. You, you, would never, you would never read the account as history, and that's how it's written, and, and come up with this idea. You would never do it. It's not a normal, natural understanding uh, of, uh, of, uh, of reading uh, a historical narrative account. Never. Never. 
You know, it's, uh, when I was at college, my father wrote me two letters in four years. Not too bad. Today, they don't write letters at all, right? Everything's email and texting and all that kind of thing, right? It'd be like me taking one of my father's letters and, uh, and separating a verse and saying, what does he mean by the gap here? You would never do that, ever, ever, ever. Although my dad did say to me when I would write to him, he always read the end of the letter first because he knew that's what I was really wanting and asking for. <laughs> and I, he, he was right on that. <laughs> Larry, you're right on that. <laughs> Send money, Dad, please. I'm a poor college kid. You know, that kind of thing. You'd never do it. You'd never find it. Never, ever, 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 ever. Did I say it enough? Ever. You'd never, never find that. Uh, Custance in, in, in trying to present this and trying to take the Hebrew, in the beginning God created heavens, the earth, and the earth, here it is, was. See the word was? Form, see the word, it's simply the word to be, the English verb to be or form of it was. Custance takes the word and he, and he makes it, and it's not in the Hebrew, it became. And it became. And there you have his, uh, his thought worked into the text. The earth became formless and void. No, never works. And though this uh, view deals uh, to its commendation, it deals with the, with the literal historical fall of Satan, for Saul, Satan did fall, Isaiah 14 and probably Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 28. And it does, to its credit, deal with the historical real fall of Satan uh, down to earth. Uh, it sadly misses and should be totally abandoned by, by you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, it fails to, to harmonize in the gap. Wow. Well, what's the second view? That's a, that's a common understanding, and there are folks in church today who say, oh yes, the gap theory, yep, that we believe that, we really think that fits, and they sort of straddle two worlds. Well, here's the second, called the day-age theory. It finds vast periods of time between the days of, of creation. This theory states that the days of Genesis are either vast periods of time, vast, maybe uh, a day might be two or three, four million years. Some, some say, well, the days overlap. It's real, real fuzzy there. And that was Stephen Goode's work and rejecting a lot of the evolution development uh, and having an impact on evangelical scientists and, and thinkers uh, in his punctuated equilibrium that there are long periods, and then all of a sudden there's rapid, and then long period, and then rapid. Uh, there are those that say, well, okay, that's what God did. Millions and millions of years. Then a literal 24-hour day. That's day two, a little long period, literal 24, day three, and like that. And so they, they have this development going on over long, vast periods of time. And would say, would embrace then, uh, that God used uh, evolution in the development of his world. That's embraced. I already told you that God has never, uh, that we have never found any transitional life forms ever. And if you missed a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with what are, what's the Bible have to say about dinosaurs? So we're going to have the CDs probably ready here and the handouts. And we asked the question what about cavemen? Cavemen, yes, whenever conditions are so bad, men and women are driven into the ground or into the cave 
Check that. We've got that CD. Ape Men, never. There never was a Cro-Magnon Man, Neanderthal Man, never, ever. And all the remains that are even debatable, and they're not really, could be fit in one human coffin and still have plenty of air left over. That is before you closed it. That's it in all of that study of historical geography. Don't be deluded. Don't surrender your Bible. Don't. Don't do that. All right? Well, number one, this theory attempts to harmonize, again, modern science thought with the Bible. It's called the, the, the science of historic, historic geo, geology. All right? It's historic geology. And it deals with way back when. We're not dealing with uh, measurable science repeatability type of, of, of discernment that comes in the laboratory where you have a variable and constants and you ought to be able to replicate that in any lab anywhere in the world at any time. This, describe its operation, its composition, its weight, all of those things. That's the scientific uh, uh, a method, and we've all learned that in, in eighth grade science or seventh grade science, right? We're talking here something non-repeatable. We're not talking about any of that kind of thing. We're talking about philosophy, really. We're talking about a world and life view. And, and there's only one who was there at the beginning, and it was God. And he tells us in the only book he ever gave how we did it. And that's good enough for me. It is. Well, here's an attempt to harmonize modern science with the Bible. Two, this appears to be, in, in my estimation, and I think it's by far so, the most common position held by the Christian community today. Did you know that? This day-age theory is the most common. There are many schools of thought. Did you know Harvard was at one point a divinity school? Don't go there today for divinity studies. But there are, are many, many Christian universities and colleges that embraced a more biblical position, but now today, if, because uh, of hiring faculty from, from prestigious secular schools given to materialism and naturalism, anything but Christian world, world life view, they, they educate and they, they hire folks like this that come and teach at Christian schools because we want to be credentialed. And they may be brilliant in their areas of study and science, maybe not even giving any thought, just adopting what they've been told and spoon-fed from various uh, universities uh, of humanism. And bit by bit, our Christian schools and universities give way to the culture, the influence. But here's the really sad thing about that. Can I say it from my heart? What really, what really sends me is that weak men in the pulpit, really, that's the problem. We ought to have men in the pulpit that say, this is what God said, and study what God has said, and allow the framework of Scripture to stand and speak into the culture and not be run around saying, oh, they, I'm not a scientist, and they must be right, and they know everything, and, and who am I to say this, and oh, let's, try and let's hold hands, can't we just hug it makes me throw up, really. It does. It does, because bit by bit, you see good churches emptying. And the, and the kids are totally brainwashed and saturated in something that is grossly unbiblical, and they're pretty bright. You know that? 
You know, and this is it. If I can't trust God in origins, I guess, I guess salvation is probably up for grabs too. And why should I even come? And God calls us to think and to be biblical in our mindset and to stand up and not be wimpy, girly men in the pulpit or in the classroom or when we have operated. What does God say? And speak forth what he said. That's what we need today. It's not a negotiable matter for me. I've seen heartbreak and loss and the downward plummeting of places where God once worked and he no longer works. So uh, why is that? Why is this the most common position by so many Christian communities who, I, I suggest a few things, either they don't think critically about such things, you know, I'm not in that department, that university professor says I'm an accountant, you know, I, I don't know those areas, or I don't know this area, I don't know that, I guess it's so, my friend, I like him, he loves the Lord, and he's, he's, bra- he's embracing modern day astrophysics, and He's a genius anyway, and so it must be right. So somehow we will accommodate all this, and bit by bit, it sinks downward. Maybe it's, they don't think, maybe it's academic acceptance. Oh, there's a lot of pressure. If you want to write and be thought bright, and you want to ascend to, the, to a certain university level or committee, just uh, don't, touch, uh, don't touch anything to do with biblical uh, origins or God or any of that, you'll be laughed out. You'll never get tenure. That happened to a gentleman at Iowa State, brilliant astrophysicist, astronomer, and uh, blackballed. Could not uh, get tenure there at Iowa State. You'll be laughed out. And so, like, I don't want that, so I'll just be mum on that and do my little area of study. Maybe it's academic acceptance. That's a big factor in certain areas. Or maybe it's just wholeheartedly, well, I believe God used this process. And that could be in bringing about uh, his universe that doesn't make it so. Uh, such men, and let me mention now, and these are men that, that claim to be Christian. I'm not, this is a family talk here today. They're not, they're not the bad guys. I don't think they're out, but Dr. Newman, my wife, Faithy, uh, sat in his class at Biblical Seminary in Hatfield. Uh, brilliant astrophysicist, Ph.D. from uh, Cornell, and uh, completely convinced when you measure the speed of light coming from distant stars that the earth has to be 17 billion years old. He loves the Lord, loves the gospel, bridges the two. But he begins at the wrong place, in my perspective. Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross. Here I have his book called The Fingerprint of God. Hugh Ross is is president of Reasons to Believe, travels all over the country and all over the world. PhD in natural science, tries to bridge um, uh, the day-age movement into uh, the Bible, claims to believe in inerrancy, uh, ridicules uh, certain parts of the Bible, retranslates parts of it, but he's called the finger of God in his book, Hugh Ross. I've taught series on this in other places, and people would mail me uh, uh, letters, and the essence was, you're an educated man, and uh, uh, shame on you for teaching that, and have you ever read this? And I've got uh, a couple of his other books. They mail me. I appreciate that. They read it, mail it to me. I get a chance to reread that, and, and that kind of thing. But Dr. Ross will teach that. Davis Young, son of uh, Edward Young, uh, 
uh, a former professor for many, many years at Westminster, Davis Young, his son, a PhD in National claims to believe the Bible, holds a progressive uh, uh, of creation, although Dr. Wickham rightfully says there's nothing progressive about it, and it's certainly not creation. Progressive creation is trying to bridge two together in one. And then at one point I heard Dr. Wickham say, why don't you just go to progressive resurrectionalism? I mean, it can't be at one moment Christ came back from the dead, right? That's a miracle in a closed system here. Why don't we just spread it out over eons of time and let Christ finally rise from the dead? Just say so you have our time with God and the miraculous and the wonder of his word and the power of God. I think he's right on that. And so uh, just a few of titles. Again, they claim to be Christians. I have no reason to doubt that, but they're trying to bridge two worlds and make the Bible say something I, I don't believe it says. Well, what are some of the assumptions? Say, well, how does it all work out? Here are some assumptions of those who hold to this position. What assumptions are the beginning points of what they assume to be true. You know, every logic is like that. Americans, we don't think anymore. We feel. If you hear that in the conversation, I don't think anymore. We don't hear what? I feel this and I feel that. No, everyone begins with certain. We assume them to be true. Here they are in this position. Number one, the universe is billions of years old. Dr. Ross, in his book, The Finger, uh, the Finger of God, says, and I quote, it's 16.3 plus or minus 3 billion years old. I don't even know what that is, 3 billion years old. He says this is assumed due to the size of the universe. What's that mean? Well, he assumes that it all came from the Big Bang, and it's all expanding. And so we just go back this way. Okay, it's got to be 17.3 billion plus or minus 3 billion years. Or other astronomical uh, phenomena such as speed of light and these kind of things and so on. Well, that's an assumption. Uh, I, on the other hand, believe in an early earth. I think the earth is only six or 10,000 years old. Dr. Ross writes that uh, if you take all of the universe and put it into one, uh, one calendar, no, no, I'm sorry, earth history. If you take all of the earth history, put it into one year, humanity's only been here for one minute. It kind of break it down to give you an idea. You say, well, wow, where'd that come from? They assume that to be true. Second assumption, this is a big problem. Death existed prior to Genesis 3. Romans 5.12 tells us that death entered the world through Adam and through Adam's sin. So I have huge problems with this. There was no death, spiritual death, physical death. Death entered the world. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the same thing. No death. How could there be a world with death and God pronounced, it's good. He looked at it on the day one, day two. It's good. It's very good. There's no death. God is the author of life. He is life. He assumes there's death in the development for millions of years. That's a problem. How do you do that and hold to inerrancy? Furthermore, uh, it is taught by Dr. Ross that neither the fall nor the flood caused uh, significant natural uh, uh, issues at all. There are no, uh, there are significant, no significant, he puts it, on your, I have it on your sheet, physical changes in nature. That's enormous. 
That's enormous. The fall, the whole world was put on tilt. Death reigned. The fall had huge changes in the world that we know. Well, you see, if you have a developing world in millions of years and animals finally developing into sort of human-like and then finally there's Adam, uh, you have a problem. You have to say, well, death existed. And, and therefore, Eden, what's Eden? Eden, in, in Dr. Ross's view, is, is that Adam walked with God. Well, no, it's far more than that, according to the text. So I'm just asking us to think about these things as we think about Genesis 1, as we think about tra- thinking about it rightly ourselves, training our children and our grandchildren, and being a blessing to those that ask of the hope that lies within us. How can you be a Christian and believe that? Well, let, let me show it to you. Okay? And the flood had huge geological changes. We live in a post-flood world. Go to the Grand Canyon. There's no force in the world today that could have caused that. It was the rapid runoff of the universal flood that was worldwide in the draining of the continents, the lifting of the continents, the sinking of the seas like a basin, and the rapid water runoff produced that. The flood had enormous changes upon the face of the earth. Huge, and he would say no. Third and finally, dual revelation. This is huge. Dr. Ross uh, believes that nature and the Bible are both equal in presenting the gospel and revealing God. He goes so far as to say, you know, there's 66 books in the Bible, that uh, nature ought to be the 67th. Now, this is tricky because it's sort of true. God has the big book of Revelation known as creation, and we certainly learn a lot of things about it. A, God is. B, the world's really there, and it has order and design. It teaches us a lot about God's power and God's ways. Wow. And, that, and we ought to never lose that. Wow. Right? But you'll never learn of the love of God. You can look at the Big Dipper you want. You'll never learn that God is a loving God. There you have to go to the little book, the Bible, where it reveals to us the wonder and the splendor in a way that nature never could. The gospel of Jesus, the wonder of the cross, the need to be saved, the reality of heaven, the horror of hell. Right? It's the Bible. They're not equal. He presents them as equal. Dr. Ross, in his view, and others of that school, very common, would say, you can look at creation and see the love of God. I I don't see it. I see some, but I see the cruelty of man. I see a fallen world. I see where if you limp your lunch. I don't see the love of God. Let's hug. I see horrible things. I deal with folks that have had horrible things happen to them by people that love them and know them and all that. And Faith and I are forever saying, I can't believe what people do to each other, how they hurt each other, the cruelty of it, and of life itself. So these are assumptions that they make, and I think they're bogus, really, dual revelation. In the revealing of God. Well, that's the day age theory. We could talk a lot about that. Again, it's an inner family discussion. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I completely uh, reject it. Let God be true and every man the opposite. 
And I'll stand with God and his word always. For by the breath of his mouth, all these things came into being. It sets the framework for me in God's amazing creation. Incidentally, <laughs> incidentally, did you know Darwin was a theologian? At least he got an undergraduate degree. He's not a scientist. He went to Cambridge. He got his only degree was in theology. Married a godly woman. She was a Baptist. Godly woman. Had to live with him all her life. And the thing that I figured that threw him off, Darwin's daughter was either 9 or 11, I don't remember, and she died. And uh, he never, never got over it. And death has a way of doing that, loss and suffering. And probably unregenerate, maybe going to Cambridge, divinity there, and studying there, and so on. But uh, he, as Darwin often talked about the human cell. <clears throat> We've learned something about the cell with advanced uh, uh, technology and uh, electron microscopes. Did you know that, the, your, that one of your human cells is more complex? Did, now catch this. One of your human cells is more complex than the largest computer that man ever made. One. You have billions of them in your body. In fact, uh, uh, James Kennedy uh, in writing and, and, and good, good resources said this, two trillion, two trillion chemical processes go on every second in every cell of your body. I pity the guy who had to count those. Two trillion. Now that's enormous. You're, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. What's the third and final common understanding? And that is called six-day creationism. It finds six consecutive 24-hour days of creation. This view, you should know, has been held by godly men and women through the centuries of time. It's true. Both Jewish in the years prior to Christ, folks that were wonderfully redeemed, and those in the church. It's the normal reading of Genesis. It's the normal, natural reading. It flows. It's history. It's not poetry. I've heard someone try and tear it apart through poetry. It's not. It's narrative. God's creation, um, uh, wonderful, and they embrace. Now, there are some... Uh, like Luther wrote very strongly about the literacy and normal understanding of Genesis. Now Augustine, the other brain, you had Augustine, they say Augustine, Cal, uh, no, Paul, Augustine, and then Calvin, when they think of the brilliant minds of the church. Augustine, and he didn't always help us in every area, certainly, but he felt like the six days ought to be one day because God is almighty God and omnipotent. He didn't need six days. Well, that's true. He didn't need six days. In fact, that's the great discussion. Why six days? Not all, all this in six days? For Almighty God, it's why six days and not one instant? Everything come into being. And there's a reason for that. We'll, we'll, we'll know what that is here in a moment if you don't. Well, A, this theory states that God could have made, could have made everything from nothing in a moment. Like Augustine suggested. But God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days. And the reason is, as the Word tells us in Exodus 20.11, as a pattern for the nation of Israel. And the work-rest cycle, six days you shall work, and seventh is the Sabbath of rest unto the Lord. As that pattern, Exodus 20, verse 11, you can look at that. Well, some of the arguments, let me give you a couple of them, why I think that uh, this is the, the best way to embrace this. 
and uh, would uh, offer this to you to think about and to pray about and to wrestle with God's Word, to be a workman that, that uh, needs not to be ashamed, but rightfully dividing the Word of truth. Well, number one, in Genesis 1, the use of the numerical adjective, day one, day two, all the way through, uh, is always, always uh, a literal 24-hour day. Day one, day two, day three. You notice how that's all the way through there, Genesis 1? You'll never find an occasion where it's not that way. The Hebrew word yom, that's the word in Hebrew for day, is used in different ways in, 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 the, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, briefly, if you've got a note there, I'll give it to you quick. It's used as a 12-hour period of light as opposed to darkness, like 114. Uh, we'll say that, daylight, nighttime, okay? Like that it's used. Second, it's referred to the solar day of 24 hours in uh, 114. Uh, third, it's the period of light that began with the creation of light on the first day. There was a, there was a light source in the spinning earth. There was day and night because it was not the sun. The sun wasn't made to the fourth day. And so it was called day. Okay, and then fourth and last, in it's used figuratively to speak of all six days of creation in the day of creation in Genesis 2, uh, verse 4. Wow. And let me just say, because some of you might ask, 2 Peter 3.8 does not, is, you can't find wiggle room in this. You know, uh, for uh, with the Lord uh, as a, a day, a thousand years, and a, day a, th uh, and a thousand years a day. Some of you will say that. There's no wiggle room in that. The word is not is. It's not a formula. Okay, oh, that must be, okay, a thousand years. No. It's as. It's a simile. It's using like or as. So what is he saying? We're not told that in 2 Peter 3.8 that God's days last a thousand years. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying is. But he's saying, number two, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. What does that mean? It means that God exists above the limitation of time. He's eternal. Everlasting to everlasting, and so we deduce God can accomplish in one brief day what man couldn't even in a thousand years, if ever. That's what Peter is saying there. There's not wiggle room there and say, oh, okay, that must be the formula of Genesis 1. No way. All right, number two, the qualifying description, evening and morning, evening and morning. I've given you that verses. Evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. The redundancy, it's just like the Lord anticipating our day of unbelief is bending over backwards. Do you see what I'm saying here? I'm talking about one 24-hour day, day-night cycle. The same thing that you enjoy when you talk about it. That is absolutely devastating to me. Number three. Uh, devastating to the day age or the gap theory and all that. Number three, Genesis 1.14 links days and years together. You see that in 1.14? And he talks about the creation of the sun and, and all that to mark uh, the seasons and the days and the years. All right, here's my thought. If days means a vast period of time, then days and years, uh, year, what, what's years mean? It's a nonsense statement then. You see that? It's a time measurement. The God gave the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, and, and we're aware of the, of the calendar, the solar calendar, and 35, you know, all that kind of thing, for days and years. 
And if days are vast periods of time, millions, what does years mean? I'm just saying they're used side by side, and it becomes a nonsense statement. And it supports, uh, I think, uh, the six-day creation. Number four, here's just a thought from science. Some of you are more scientific-minded than others. The laws of thermodynamic uh, actually contradict evolution. What does that mean? Well, the first law and the second law. The second law says this, everything's growing to disorder. We've touched on this lately in weeks gone by. It's growing to disorder. It's not getting special, better and better. It's going down and down. The, the earth is slowing. Did you know that? It's slowing on its axis, like a top spinning. It's slowing down. The moon is actually coming closer. Did you know that? A couple inches a year. It's slowing down. Disorder. Disorder. It's like, uh, it's like uh, my boys when they were teenagers and, and they get out of bed in the morning and we look at them, oh my, look at you. You're a mess. Look at your hair. Completely disordered. You had to apply energy. Get in the shower. Shampoo it. Wash yourself. Get the dirt off. Let's face the day. You had to apply energy. Why? It's downward. Your lawn is like that. It's downward. It's downward. We're on a dying planet. The law of thermodynamics absolutely con contradicts it. And let me give you another one. Just, I made mention, no, I mentioned it already. Uh, after its kind, the specificity of that, at least 10 times in Genesis 1, number 5, after its kind, after its kind, it's within its genetic species. And that's the way we find the world. Wow. Now here's the final thought, and then we'll close after lessons. Remember the analogy of Jesus. Remember this. Never forget this. This is, this is utterly devastating. And this will help you a great deal. The God-man stood here on earth. He was God, made in flesh. And sometimes he spoke, and sometimes he touched, and sometimes he didn't say anything, and he accomplished his purpose. It was the power of God in him. There was one time when there were thousands of people that were hungry after he preached. They didn't have Burger King. And he fed them with fish that never swam and bread that never grew. And they had baskets left over from a little boy's lunch. Well, how did he do that? Well, some of the liberal writers say, well, everyone whipped out their lunch once they saw the boys. Brown bagged it, I guess. No way. He just gave thanks to, to his Father in heaven. Never spoke the word. Didn't do any razzmatazz, any of that, right? Just served hot lunch. I think the fish probably salted. Wow. There's, there's a hint in the analogy of Jesus of the power of God in creation. He created he touched the eyes that were blind and opened them. He healed from afar. He raised the dead. That's the power of God. Lazarus, come forth. Instantly, a man who had been dead four days, no smoke, no mirrors, no magic here, came back to life. It gives us a hint in the analogy of Jesus of the power of God as creator. That when Genesis said he spoke, you don't need to think about it, right? 
It happened. It happened. By the word of the Lord with the heavens made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. He's amazing. Utterly, utterly amazing. Never forget it. And incidentally, two references. The Lord evidently believed in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and Matthew 19. And that question about divorce and all of that, Jesus' answer, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And forever, the Lord underlined and put, I agree with Genesis 1. And later in Matthew chapter 24, verse 38 and 9, he believed in the flood. In the days of Noah, so shall it be at the last days, eating and drinking and taking in marriage at the coming of the Lord. And when he's talking about Noah, he said, and I quote, and the flood came and took them all away. All of them, all the people that ever lived that saved eight people in a floating box and the animals there died. All of them. And if the Lord's wrong on that, we have a huge problem. Huge. Say, someone, your friend say, well, do you really believe in creation? Say, yeah, the Lord didn't. I guess I'm in good company. Yeah, did you believe in a universal flood that wiped them out and all that? Yeah, hey, you know what? The Lord did, and I'd rather stay close to him and agree with him. You ever sit to someone close in a class that were really bright? So you kind of sit there, and they, they sort of got the advanced math or the advanced science, and you're kind of hoping that, you know, it'll help you with the homework or, or rub off a little bit and that, that kind of thing. And I'm sitting next to him, and he didn't have any problem with it. He's the creator that holds it all together, Colossians 1. Well, lessons for life, and we'll be done and have lunch. And number one, remember this. We'll be available following the service. Sorry. Okay, look at this. Write them down. We'll, we'll, we'll add it on. Thank you, Jen. I don't know what happened. must be a technical difficulty. Number one, the end of theology is worship. We want to study the Word so that we can worship Him and worship Him rightly. And your daily worship ought to be, Lord, I bow before you as Creator. Without any suspicion, well, maybe it wasn't quite that way. Creator and Redeemer. All right, let's worship Him that way. Bow before Him and call people to do that. The end of theology is worship. Worship Him as Creator and Redeemer. Number two, you can have complete confidence in God's Word. Complete, complete confidence. It is the Word of God. It, is all, it alone is trustworthy all the way through and cover to cover. Complete confidence in God's wonderful Word. Number three, be aware of Satan's desire to deceive. Be aware of Satan's desire to deceive by attacking God's Word. He's a great deceiver. And number four, you are special. Not with ions of times and millions of years and voila, there you are. In two varieties, chocolate and vanilla, male and female. No way. No way. And we haven't been here that long. Nope. And there haven't been that many generations. And someday soon it's coming to an end.
You're special. You're made in God's likeness and image. So don't get lost in the myriads of ions of time. There haven't been that many, and God knows all about you. We said last week, you could take all the Earth's population, all of them, six billion, and stand them in the largest city in America, in the city of Jacksonville, Florida. You're special, made in God's likeness and image, different from all other life forms. You're not an animal. And finally, let me urge you to bow before the Lord Jesus as creator and redeemer. Trust him as your savior. If you've never have, you must. It's not a suggestion. We're commanded to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Have you done that? You must. Young or old, it matters. It's not just for kids. It's for all of us. Have you received Christ as your Savior? You can in a moment, a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord, my God, my Creator, my all. Thank you for dying for me. Praise God. Well, gap, ages, or days? Uh, it's an intra-Christian family discussion. I think you know where I stand. Not sure where you do. I hope you stand where I stand. We'll give an account someday before the Lord of how we've handled this word, studied it, lived it, and propagated it. And I want you to, to, to hear, well done. Well done. Well, we're going to have lunch. It's for everybody.